Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Aaron, and uh, I'm one of the elders here at Hope. I'm not the uh, regular teaching pastor here, but it really always is a privilege to preach to our church family, and I'm really excited to dip into the Word for a little bit this morning. Um, so the plan is that we'll start out by reading the text together in Proverbs 6, and then I'm going to ask the Lord to keep us all focused and humble and diligent to learn from the Word. So let's take a minute to go ahead and turn to Proverbs 6. If you've got your Bibles with you, a, a physical copy, or you can use your phone and go ahead and get that queued up from Proverbs chapter 6. And while you're doing that, I just want to explain a little bit of what's going on here for context. We, we find this cluster of four Proverbs in chapter 6, and we're going to hone in on the second of all those Proverbs, the second teaching in verses 6 through 11, as kind of the home base for the sermon today. Hopefully you've had some time to turn there. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6 through 11 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Let's pray. Lord, will you please expose the truth to us today? We need your help to be diligent because our hearts are prone to excuse making, to seeking the idol of comfort. We want to preserve and protect our interests. But help us to sacrifice and strive and serve with diligence, not for our own good, but for the sake of your kingdom, for the love for your people, and the praise of your name. We need your help to do this, and so I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Oh, sluggard. Sluggard. What does that mean? Who is the sluggard? My oldest son Judah this morning joked that it's a slug farmer. The sluggard is a slug farmer, obviously, which I thought was pretty hilarious. I don't know about you guys, but I don't hear that word much in my day-to-day life. I'm, I'm not talking about this sluggard. I, I don't hear that at work, thankfully. In fact, some of you may have never heard that word before I said it today, and that's okay. It's a weird word. It's archaic. It's uncommon. So why use it? I think there's actually a really good reason why it's in our Bibles here today and why I'm going to continue to use it throughout the day. First of all, it's, it's kind of a personification that we find throughout Proverbs. The sluggard is referenced in many different Proverbs here. And so there's this character, if you will, of the sluggard. And the definition is important too because the word sluggard is a noun that refers to the habitually lazy person. And that description has an important distinction from many other words you could use to talk about laziness. The phrase lazy person doesn't qualify the situation enough because the sluggard is not a hardworking person or even the average person who's just being lazy right now. The sluggard is habitually lazy. This is a person characterized by laziness. 
I was trying to think of a good illustration of laziness, and my mind went to a sloth. I don't think that's real creative. I could have used a slug or all kinds of, like, the turtles are slow. There's all those types of illustrations. But the more I thought about it, about using the sloth as an example of laziness, it struck me sloths might actually be the worst example that I could give of laziness. Why? Because sloths might actually work really hard within the confines of their ability. Let me explain. (laughs) They live in tropical, humid, hot rainforests, but have the equivalent of a thick pile carpet on their scrawny hides. I mean, don't sign me up for that. I'm warm right now, and you guys are all like, oh, it's cold in here with the AC, and I'm just constantly hot. So I hear that, and that's my nightmare. They have two, or in some cases, three finger-length claws. So not three fingers, that would be a problem, but claws instead of fingers. And they live their lives climbing around on trees with claw fingers. And only two or three of them, depending on the species. It's, it's kind of like if Edward Scissorhands lived on like a rope obstacle course for his whole life. <laughs> they mostly eat bugs and leaves, which we all know is a breakfast of champions. They have blurry vision, and their metabolism is half the speed of any comparable animal in the 8 to 14 pound range, which is how much they weigh. Even though they're three feet long, they only weigh eight pounds. So in terms of abilities and physical giftings, the sloth has drawn the shortest of short straws in the mammal world. Yet we have no evidence of laziness when we see that. They may have to pace themselves. If you move at sloth speed, we might have reason to call you lazy, but given the tools they have, I'm kind of impressed they move at all. They might actually be quite diligent in their endeavors day to day to move at 13 feet per minute. Yes, you heard me right. 13 feet per minute. I mean, just for fun, watch this. They do that in a minute. I'm not even that fast, and I was able to do it much faster than that. Anyway, even if my defense of the sloth isn't, you know, you guys aren't buying it, that's fine. Because thankfully, as we look here in Proverbs 6, we have a different illustration. One that I think is a little more obvious to us. And that's where we're going to start today. Proverbs 6, verse 6. We're going to look at our first lesson on diligence today. The example of the ant's diligence. You see, the sluggard is instructed to go to the ant in verse 6. And going to is a command to be in the ant's presence. Literally, go to the ant, look at it, observe it, watch it. And here's a critical phrase attached to that. It's not just go look at the ant. It's go to the ant, observe, and be wise. If you think back to Pastor Jeff's definition of wisdom at the beginning of this, serv- of this series, we learn that biblical wisdom is the skill of navigating life the way God desires. So here, in order to further develop that skill, the sluggard needs to observe the one that's doing it right. And we've been given this excellent example, this illustration in the actions of the ant. I actually find this, the existence of go to the ant so that you can be wise as incredibly instructive and hope-building. Why? Because it removes the temptation for some of us to believe that you're just born wise, 
or you're born lazy or you're born ignorant. And it just removes that argument from our mind that some people are just wise, but I'm not. If it's a skill that can be observed and therefore embraced or rejected, then there's hope for us to grow in it. And according to this passage, the sluggard is not locked into the role of habitual laziness. It's not hopeless. It's not genetic. It's not your family history. It's not you forever, the lazy person. Instead, we're able to exercise this skill of wisdom and diligence. So now that we can all be excited, there's a way out if this is a characteristic that we possess. I can't help but wonder why the ant? What, what are we supposed to learn from that? Okay, I've gone to the ant, but what are we supposed to learn from the ant? Well, this is really cool because you don't need a biology degree. You don't need to be an entomologist to uh, look at the ant and learn something because it's provided right here in the text. The text explains the specific aspects of antism that we're supposed to grasp onto today. In fact, it says, verse 7 through 8, they sa- it says, Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So what's going on here? It's, it's not that difficult of a phrase, but there's kind of a building argument here. There's, there's stages to what the ant does, and I want to unlock that a little bit. I, I, I'm, I've been calling this the, these stages, I've been calling the proverbial norm of diligence. And I'm going to refer to that throughout this sermon Because what we see here is from this proverb, we get the norm of kind of how diligence works. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. So tuck that phrase into your mind and uh, we'll bring it back out later. As we look at verse 7 and 8, there's three things going on here uh, that I think really help us understand what, you know, godly diligence, what proverbial norm of diligence is. The first is the ant is ambitious. The ant works without need of supervision or oversight. It says right there, without a chief, an officer, or a ruler. That means the motivation comes from within, or there's some sort of instinct that keeps the ant doing what it does. And what we're supposed to grab from that is that the ant is ambitious, it's active, it has motivation in its work. Secondly, the ant is industrious. The ant does work of making her nourishing food. The ant does important work and stays active. We see that right there with she prepares her bread in summer. At the right time, she's working. And then thirdly, the ant is anticipating. The ant works in a way that allows for provision at the right time, particularly future need. The ant is anticipating a need and works in a way that plans for the future. So when the winter comes, as we read here, she's able to gather her food. I think that here we see a pretty good working definition of diligence from the example of the ant. You see the diligent person and therefore the wise person, because we're here in Proverbs. Remember, this is all linked to wisdom and godly living. The diligent person is characterized as ambitious, industrious, and anticipating. And that's the first lesson. Just what it is. It's, it's kind of the way that we flourish. I don't think this is like super shocking to anybody. The person who plans and the person who works hard will be able to save and prepare for the difficult times. It's kind of the way it works, but it's important. 
for those of us who have tendencies towards laziness to look to that and understand that it's a way to flourish. It's a way to turn away from the way we shouldn't be and to embrace wisdom in this area of our work. But why is being a sluggard a bad thing? Why should we go to the ant? Why do we need to observe and learn and stretch this muscle of wisdom called diligence? Well, that's the second lesson that we learned from Proverbs 6. And it is the end result of laziness is loss. I like that we get to go down this avenue. We just talked about that kind of the positive thing. This is what you do if you want to grow in this area. Yay! This is kind of the negative side, but it's actually a good thing. It, it really helps us get away from a lazy reading of the situation that would say, you know what, let bygones be bygones. You know, you do you. Um, I'm, I'm going to work hard, but you can be lazy. Or, or I'm going to chill, you, you can go do your thing. And there's plenty of things in life we can do that with. There's probably more things than not that we can go, you know, that's, that's just what they do and that's okay. But as we delve into verses 9 through 11 here in Proverbs 6, we learn things about the sluggardly, habitually lazy lifestyle that are shocking. Because the end result of that lifestyle of habitual laziness is loss and ruin. What's cool here is that the activity of the sluggard that we're about to go into is actually a parallel of the ant. So some of it should feel, you know, somewhat familiar. And I want to point out the contrast between the ant's activity and the description of the sluggard here quickly, because I think it's important for us to have that contrast as we talk about the negative side. You remember how the ant shows initiative and ambition, how the ant is motivated and it doesn't need constant supervision and the action of an outside influence to do things? It's kind of the opposite of what we see here with the sluggard. You see, the author of this proverb is trying to find out when the sluggard will even get up. Look at verse 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? He's not talking about like bad motivations at that point. He's saying, like, you're not even up. You can't do anything because you're at that level. There's no action because you have no motivation to even get up. If you remember from last week, Chris brought up this example of a, of a person who would dip the chip but not actually bring it up to their mouth. We, yeah, we laughed. It's, it's hilarious because that's ridiculous. Have you ever even had queso before? To not put that in my mouth is the real problem. It's like the greatest invention, like culinary invention in the history of the world. But guess who it was that wouldn't bring their chip to their mouth, who would dip their bread and not eat it. Proverbs 19.24, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. Do you remember how the ant is industrious? Remember how she keeps herself occupied with worthwhile work that provides nourishment? Well, our passage today describes a sluggard's activity in a different way, with sarcasm. Verse 10, we get the description of the sluggard's action or lack thereof. It says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Overresting, slumber, sleepwalking through the day. There's a sarcastic tone here. It suggests mockery that he keeps, he needs a little sleep, 
a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, just a little. I just need a little of that. The problem with the sluggard has never been occasional, purposeful, planned rest and recovery. This isn't a statement arguing against vacation. This is a mockery of the abuse of rest. How do I know? Let's look at some descriptions of the sluggard, and then I want to kind of contextually talk about how Israel would have viewed rest. In Proverbs 22.13, we read, The sluggard says, There's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. I can't go out. It's dangerous. Because the sluggard is an excuse maker. The sluggard attempts scaremongering and cites fear to excuse himself from what he needs to do to stay inside. In Proverbs 20, verse 4, there's a, a verse that I memorized when I was a little kid in the King James Version. So my wife always teases me about that when I quote it. Um, so I'm not going to read it in that. Proverbs 20, verse 4, we see, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. The presumption is that the sluggard doesn't plow in the cool season when he's supposed to. And since the sluggard has no furrows dug, he'll never plant the seeds. And because the seeds are never planted, there'll never be growth of grain. And because there's no grain, there's no bread. So when the winter actually comes and the food is needed, it's not there. There's procrastination. The sluggard won't even take the first step. He's not even awake yet. So how's he going to actually get to digging the furrows he needs to plant? You see, rest is not the issue here. This is in the context of a people who observes Sabbath set by the example of the Lord who rested on the seventh day of creation. So the idea of rest and Sabbath is not one that's held in disdain. This wasn't a culture that was embracing busyness and rejecting rest. It embraced and wove rest into society and even the worship of the people. So these critiques of the sluggard, they highlight a misuse. Here we see that habitual excuse-making and poor planning, they become the fruit of of a person with no godly ambition and no desire to put their hands to hard work and ultimately no recognition of their fate. Rest is good, but the misuse of it is dangerous. And though the ant's end is one of reward when winter comes, that sustains them, the end of the sluggard is one of want and loss and poverty because of procrastination. You see, verse 11 hits us with a stark word picture that points to a scary reality. It says, poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. I'm not going to belabor this point, but I do think that the, the term robber doesn't probably carry the same weight for us as it did the original audience. So I just want to look at that for a second. Because maybe you picture, when you picture robber, you picture black and white stripes going horizontally on a t-shirt with a black mask and some constable chasing him. Maybe you picture a a junior hire or something walking up and grabbing a piece of candy at the convenience store and sneaking out. That's what kind of robber came to mind for me. And I realized that's not what's going on here. It's a lot heavier of a statement than that. There was no 911 in ancient Israel. If someone came in the night and you had no watchman, no weapon, no oldest son, no ally, no friends in the neighborhood to look out with you, 
no one you could trust. The robber was a real danger. It didn't just mean insurance will take care of it. It meant we may not be eating. It, may, it meant we may not have milk. It meant that we may not have food. The robber, as we see in verse 11, that's the one that takes. But there's another description of want, and that's the armed man. That one hits a little heavier for us. The robber's the one who takes, but the armed man is the one who takes with violence and threat. And that presents the picture that for the sluggard, poverty comes in a way that removes resources. But that want, that desire that will never be fulfilled because they'll never move on it, that's like the experience of armed robbery. It's painful and threatening. It's abusive. And laziness is the house guest that leaves the door open or unlocked and allows him to come in. The result of rejecting diligence and embracing laziness is loss. Before we move on past that point, I've got to do a little sidestep here and address something. I want to take a moment to talk about poverty. I think there's something important going on here because it's brought up, but there could be a misuse and a misapplication of this. I just want to address that briefly. I want to highlight that this passage does not teach that those who face poverty are lazy. It says that want and poverty come upon the lazy, but it does not say that all poverty is caused by laziness. Sometimes poverty is caused by unjust rulers. Sometimes poverty is caused by deceitful business practices. Poverty is caused by war and oppression, slavery, and systems that push against upward mobility or flat out make rules against it. To look at oppressed people throughout the ages or even those who are oppressed today, the starving, the possessionless, the outcast, and to say that it's laziness is to speak from a place of ignorance. Remember, we're talking about a proverbial norm here. It's establishing a truth for sure. But the application of that truth needs to fit the situation. The application is important. And I just want to highlight that particular side of poverty this morning. The word of God doesn't give license to accusations against the oppressed. We don't know why someone faces hunger or poverty, but it's a misapplication of this text to assume that it's laziness. Stepping back in. I've referred to the proverbial norm of diligence a few times here, and this is the way things work in relation to flourishing and wisdom to diligence versus laziness. The wise and diligent are motivated. They work hard at, meanwhile, at mean, worthwhile things, and in the end, they work in a way that has lasting effect when they need it. That shouldn't be shocking. It's fairly obvious, but... There's a twist here. You see, the gospel changes everything. We can't just rely on the obvious. We can't rely on the norm when it comes to Jesus Christ. This passage is true. It's accurate. But this proverb is not the full story. As of right now, there's not much that I've said that is that different from what you could hear at a synagogue, at a mosque, 
at a self-help thing, some professional um, setting or seminar. So we've got to go a little deeper. How are the concepts of diligence and laziness affected by the life, death, and resurrection and rule of Jesus Christ? Is there more to be said? Well, I think there is. And I'm going to end with the final lesson. The eternal significance of Christian diligence. Using the same structure of the example of the ant and the sluggard, I want to draw out some uniquenesses of Christian diligence. For just That's the way we'll end. And I think it completely reshapes the application from Proverbs 6. What does the pattern of ambitious and industrious and anticipating diligence mean in light of the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, let's start with what the good news is. The good news begins with the not-so-good news that man is separated from God because of sin. I'm going to stop here. I just feel like we're getting familiar with this. So, so dig in with me. Listen. You can get really familiar with the gospel. I, I admit, like, if I was sitting out there, I might be tempted right now to, like, go, like, I know this. Okay, I'll come back in in two paragraphs. But lock in with me. This is critical. The good news begins with the not-so-good news that man is separated from God because of sin. We're here in this place, on this earth, we feel alone. Some people act like we're alone, but we're not. We fight each other. Not only can we not get along with each other, we hurt ourselves too. We ignore our Creator. We ignore our our consciences. We do what is right in our own eyes, even when we know it's not actually right. This is sin. It's the greatest problem that we face. But here's the good news. God, rich in mercy and demonstrating his love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take all that sin, that brokenness, that failure, that harm, that pain, that evil that we do in defiance of him. Jesus took that on and he killed it forever on the cross offering forgiveness to his enemies. Then in demonstration that he was who he said he was and he would do what he said he would do, he rose from the grave, defeating death and beginning the process of renewal for all who would follow him by turning away from sin and accepting his gift of faith when the Spirit opens their eyes. It's powerfully good news and it changes everything for those who trust in Jesus. So I'm going to close with some ramifications on diligence and laziness from Proverbs 6 that come from this good news. How does this good news reshape the conversation around try harder? I'm going to start with the bad news about the good news. First of all, without Jesus, your diligence means nothing. It's all well and good to be hardworking. And to be diligent is to be wise. But hell will be filled with people that worked hard. I logged more hours than all my coworkers, Lord. I set my family aside to accomplish the mission, Jesus. My hands have calluses and my fingers are raw from a life of labor. Let me in. But Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. 
You'll never find a motivation apart from Christ that will overcome your sin. You'll never work hard enough to pay back the debt you owe. You'll never save up or accumulate the righteousness necessary to dwell in the presence of God. Spiritual laziness that rejects Jesus won't be met with the hunger that the sluggard experiences in winter, but it will be met with the second death, with spiritual death and hell. It's a bigger deal than a hungry winter, everybody. This is our eternal destiny we're talking about. Proverbs 6 provides a helpful roadmap for earthly success and for wisdom. And it's significant. It does matter. But without Jesus, it's just vanity. It's grasping at the air as it passes and having nothing. This is a heavy truth. But it serves us well. Because if you believe it and you stretch and you work those wisdom muscles right now by embracing You'll heed the warning and you'll, advay, you'll avoid the, the wasted time and energy of worthless things. It will help you reject idols. It will help you turn away from accumulating money as your savior. It'll help you turn away from relationships that pull you down and tempt you or people that use you. They're not your boss. It'll prevent the greatest disappointment you can experience of putting anything before God and then meeting him and realizing that the whole thing was a waste. It's sobering, but it's helpful. The gospel shows our need, but it also provides for our need. This brings me to the last point of application and where we'll end today. This is, this is a point of encouragement. <laughs> so if that felt heavy, which I hope it did, this is a real encouragement to see that the gospel provides for our need. Because you can't work hard enough, because you can't be diligent enough, you can't start here. You can't start this endeavor of spiritual, distinctly Christian diligence with yourself. You need to start elsewhere. Your view of diligence needs to shift from the thing that saves me, the thing that makes life worthwhile and make it a response to the one who saved you, the one who makes everything worthwhile. Christian diligence is not primarily to make your life better. Working hard will make your life better. I think that's the proverbial norm seen here in Proverbs 6. You will have better quality of life. You will have success in ways that you won't if you are lazy and sluggardly. But that's not distinctly Christian diligence. Christian diligence is, a, is actually a form of worship to your Savior. It's a response. Following Jesus diligently is following him faithfully. What's required in a servant? To be found faithful. It's praise. It's honoring his name. It will bring you great joy and pleasure. It will bless those around you. Because instead of being a burden on them with your laziness, they receive the blessing of your diligent work in Christ. And in the end, we see that all those in Christ will celebrate diligently in his presence forever. Isn't it a beautiful thought 
that we might be diligent in our worship for the sake of his name. That, that we could work hard to sacrifice and serve others in a way that stores up treasures in heaven, not just here on earth where everything seems to get ruined. We should be diligent rather than lazy. That was crystal clear from Proverbs 6. It's just generally speaking, it is wise to try hard. It leads to flourishing. It does. But be sure to do so wisely with the knowledge that it is Jesus who saves. And it is Jesus who rewards, not our own efforts. To be diligent in this life is better than laziness. But to be diligent in following Christ is truly wise. Let's pray. Lord, as we, as always, we need your help to do this. May your spirit motivate this people, Hope Fellowship, to act for your glory and the benefit of others. Help us to work hard, but not as if it's the ultimate goal, not as if it saves us. May we display diligence that, that owes itself much less to the Protestant work ethic or the nature of the way our culture and society works. May it actually display that our work is a commitment to Christ and to his mission to secure his people. May we embrace hard things diligently for the sake of the gospel and in light of the gospel. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.